We're headed to Acts chapter 4 as we continue a series on chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And this morning what I'd like to be focusing on is a section that we have stopped towards the end of Acts chapter 4 and go into Acts chapter 5, the beginning of it. Did I not dismiss the kids? Thank you, whoever dismissed the kids. Thank you for doing that. Go, guys, go. Okay. When you get old, you forget certain things that are so important like that. But some things I haven't forgotten. I remember a number of years ago after a church service, I was standing over by the foyer over here, and it was, in, it was a number of years ago. And I was talking to somebody, and when I was finishing talking with them, there was another family that my wife and I had visited who were in the community who we had started a Bible study with, and they were standing right about where I can see into the foyer right now off to the side. This wasn't a very rich family, and so they didn't have the nice clothes that others had. They had a teen boy and a teen girl. And I will not forget this morning, that one morning what happened. I just finished the conversation. That visiting family was standing there, and two of our teen girls who came on a regular basis walked past them. And as they walked past me, they said something about, we don't need to hang around that girl. She doesn't dress nice. And I remember the feeling immediately just of anger. And I saw that that teen girl who was with her family visiting, she heard him. She turned, oh, her eyes were just broken. She was broken. They didn't visit much after that. I didn't say anything, even though the Word of God says that we're supposed to confront people who do wrong, because I didn't have the spirit of meekness at that moment. I was just so angry with those two teen girls. And so I knew that we'd have to talk with them. We did afterwards. And I wanted to just reassure our church family. It's time again. We did a series right after that on body ministry with the idea of reaching out, receiving others. Because we want to receive. We want others who don't know Christ or who are new to the community of faith. We want them to feel a welcomeness in Jesus Christ. But there's one person who if they show up at church, I hope you never welcome them. I hope you never greet them. I hope you never say, come and sit by me. It comes from the story of Acts chapter 4 going into chapter 5 when all of a sudden it's the day that I'm calling the day that Satan visited the church. It's a time when all of a sudden the church is doing really, really good. We talked about this the last few weeks. We talked about how good the church was going at that time. They were just weeks old and already there was people being added to the body. And it's just not numbers, mind you, but they were reaching souls. They had seen 3,000 saved. Then the Lord was adding daily. Then another 5,000 men believed. And it was growing in number, but greater yet, it was growing in spirit. The church was maturing. As we looked at last week, the multitude of them had one heart, one spirit, and there was a love and there was a compassion that was pouring from this body that it was really making moves for Jesus Christ. And as a result, God was blessing them. They had a tremendous witness. Grace was upon them. And they were caring for one another. Nobody was lacking within that body of their basic needs. There was just a greatness that was happening. And many of them, as we looked at last week, they even went to the point that they sold possessions so as to help out others in the church body that had need. And they were helping, and they were great, being gracious. One of those characters we didn't talk about last week at the end of chapter 4 
was a man who's introduced as one of those good guys. We're going to learn a lot about him from the rest of the book of Acts. You know him. Joseph is his name or Joseph. His nickname is Barnabas. That's probably the name most of you know him by. But his story is told in verse 36 at the end of chapter 4. Joseph, who by the, uh, the apostles was nicknamed Barnabas, which being interpreted as the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it, brought it the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. We don't know much about this guy, but this much we know, you know, he's there, he's a believer. He's Jewish in background. He comes from the land of Cyprus, so his native land is not Judea or Jerusalem. He must have come as part of that that Feast of Pentecost and been one of those many who responded to the gospel. We know he's of the priestly line, the, the, the tribe of Levite, which, by the way, poses a problem because the passage goes on and says he owns a certain piece of land, and yet from the Old Testament, the Levites weren't supposed to own property. They were supposed to basically live off the charity of the others and the land. And so the, the, the conflict that people try to look and say, how is this, could be explained this way, that that law of not owning land applied to the Jews within the boundaries of Israel. He wasn't there. He had land elsewhere. Or it could be very simply that by the time of the New Testament they weren't monitoring or weren't following that rule from the Old Testament anymore to their neglect. Whatever the reason, he owned property. And what happens is this man sells the property like the others in the previous verses that weren't named, but he's called out. He's named. That he's the one who sold and gave the money, handed it to the apostles and said, be charitable. Help people out. And so what they do, what they do is they give him a nickname, the nickname Barnabas. We read about it already from scriptures that it is a nickname. It is a nickname that means son of consolation. To put it in modern terms, 2023, his nickname would be Mr. Encouragement. That's the idea that he's really building up others. And uh, so we understand that he is doing this, that he is building up others, and he got that nickname. That is because he was doing it in this chapter. But when you look at the rest of his story... Every time he's showing up in the rest of the book of Acts, and he's going to be named some 23, 24, 25 times in the rest of the book of Acts, every time he's engaging in helping people, being an encouragement to people. In chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul, who is still named Saul, when he gets saved, nobody wants to do anything with Paul. Nobody wants to get close to him because they think he's a threat, he's a danger, and maybe he's pretending to be a disciple to get inside and then destroy the church. The first one to reach a hand out to Paul when he gets saved, the first one to really welcome him is Barnabas. They become friends. And as the story goes along, Barnabas leaves Jerusalem and goes up to Antioch because there's baby Christians who need to be discipled. And he says, somebody's got to teach them. Somebody's got to help them. I'll do it. I'll go and help teach them. And then that leads to him and Paul, who grows over a period of time, gets into the fellowship. Those two are working together. And that leads to them going on the first missionary journey. Then the second journey together. And while they're on the missionary journey, they go on that first journey. They have uh, Barnabas's relative, nephew, by the name of John Mark, who ends up writing the Gospel of Mark. They have him go along, but partly through the journey, he's homesick, he's physically sick, whatever reason, he leaves. Paul thinks he abandoned us, and he didn't follow through. And so on the next missionary trip, when they're ready to go, Barnabas says, I want to take Mark again. Give him another shot. 
Paul says, absolutely not. And Barnabas is the one who gives who gives Mark a second chance as an encourager. And then later on, Paul writes about him in Colossians chapter 4 and says, John Mark is profitable to me. He's become a benefit. And, John, and basically, John Mark owes it to Barnabas. Barnabas is the guy who reached out to help him. He's Mr. Encouragement. That's him. That's Barnabas. That's his story. And I had to pause and ask myself this question. If I got a nickname by the body of Christ, what would it be? I know it would probably be Mr. Long-Winded by the majority. But in seriousness of saying, okay, what would be your nickname for the way you treat other people? Would you get a nickname of Mr. Consistent or Mr. Up and Down? Would people nickname you Miss Joyful or Miss Discontent? Because you're always finding fault. If you got a nickname, would it be they would call you the Prayer Warrior or would they call you the Panicker? the powder. If they said a nickname, you are a servant of Christ, or would it be true to say no time for Christ other than maybe Sunday morning at 1030? If you got nicknamed, would you be Mr. Humility or Mr. Everybody Look at Me? Notice me. You know, if you got a nickname, could you be called Mrs. Build Other People Up or Mrs. Fault Finder? critiquing, criticizing. You know, Barnabas shows me this, that anybody, not just the apostles, they, they've been the key to the story. Anybody can become an encourager. Anybody can contribute to helping. It doesn't take much, especially encouraging people, especially the idea of not coming in and just enclosing around yourself and not interacting with people and going out. Encouraging others by befriending, reaching out. It can be done in many small ways. R.C. Sproul is a preacher, author from years ago, and he writes about a time when he was teaching in a Bible college. And as he was teaching, there was one day when a young man came in who was studying for ministry. This young man wasn't normal in the sense of normal like you and me physically. He had an ailment. He had uh, the cerebral palsy. And so his movements were jerky. His speech was slurred. And there was times when all of a sudden his hands would flail or his legs would flail and he would lose control. And, hard, and it was very hard for him to walk. But he was a real likable guy and a really good student. But one day he came to Dr. Sproul and he said, I want you to pray for me. I'm really struggling. And he shared his struggle with Dr. Sproul. And Dr. Sproul said, as, as I was trying to encourage this young man, he said, God taught me a tremendous lesson about little things. He said, I had talked with him, shared some scripture, and then I said, let's pray. And I prayed, and the prayer went something like, oh Lord, please help encourage this young man. In, and he went on to describe he said, when I got done praying, I looked up and the young man started crying and then sobbing. And I said to him, what's wrong? Did I say something wrong? Is there something? He said, no. Nobody has ever called me a man before. This doesn't take much. Some people who are really hurting, it doesn't take much to be an encourager. You can do it. I was reading the account of a little boy who this little boy is on a train, and maybe I, it would be better and wiser for me to just read you this account 
so as to get all the nuances. So excuse me, I don't mean to bore, but to get the point across, this little boy huddled so close to the woman in gray that everybody on the train thought he belonged to her. So when his muddy shoes rubbed up against the lady sitting on the other side of the little boy, that woman leaned over and said, Pardon me, madam, will you kindly have your little boy put his feet down off the seat? He's soiling the seat in my clothes with his muddy shoes. The woman in gray blushed a little and nudged the boy away. My boy? My goodness, this lad doesn't belong to me. The little boy then squirmed uneasily. He was so small that his feet could not touch the floor as he stuck them straight out in front of him like pegs that were used to hang things on a wall. Then he whispered, I'm so sorry I got your dress dirty. I hope it'll brush off. The woman replied, Oh, it doesn't really matter after all. Then as his eyes were still fastened on her, she added, Are you going uptown all alone? Yes, ma'am. I always go alone. There isn't anybody to go with me. My dad is dead and my mom, she died just a couple weeks ago. I now live with Aunt Clara in Brooklyn, but she says Aunt Anna ought to help do some things for me. So every so often, when she gets tired, she says she wants to go and find a place to have some fun herself. She's going to send me over to stay at at Aunt Anna's place. I'm going up there now, and there's been a time or two that I didn't find Aunt Anna home, but I hope she'll be home today because it looks like it's going to rain, and I don't like hanging around in the street when it's raining. The woman now felt a little uncomfortable. Something got stuck in her throat, and she said, you sure are a little boy, too little to be knocked around this way. Oh, I don't mind. I don't get lost, but I do get lonesome sometimes on the train rides. So when I see somebody that I think I would like to belong to, I scooch up close to her and make believe that I really do belong to her. And this morning I was playing that this lady here on the other side, that I belong to her. And I forgot all about my feet and dirty shoes. That's why I got your clothes so dirty and I'm really sorry. The woman paused a moment then put her arm around the tiny chap and snooched him closer to herself. So close and tight that she almost hurt him. And every other woman who had heard the conversation looked and felt as if she would gladly let the little boy wipe his shoes on her very best gown. The lesson that I learned as I watched that day is don't be so short with others. Be sensitive to their needs. How many little boys and of all different shapes and sizes do you run across? How many sit near you when we come to worship? How many do you reach out to? How many do you take time for? Well, Mr. Encouragement, he did that. And I would say to you this morning, please, take time this week to encourage somebody. Take time to actually thank somebody for what they've ministered to you. Like here this morning. Take time to thank those who did the music. Take time to thank those who teach. Take time to appreciate those who help with a sound system. You wouldn't like it if you couldn't hear. Take time, those who work in the nursery. Take time to thank those who greet, who give direction, who help. Take time to notice somebody when you go out this afternoon if you're headed for the lunch. And just take time to say something simple like, you're doing a very good job, thank you. Take time to mention to your coworkers how much you appreciate how they have contributed. Instead of criticizing, find a place to compliment. Take time. 
Put your arm around somebody who's hurting. Stop thinking about yourself and minister to somebody else. That's Mr. Encouragement. That's the good guy in the lesson. But that's not where we started or we want to end up. We want to talk about there's good guys in the church and the church is doing good. But Satan doesn't like that. So Satan, like the roaring lion, he got busy in the book of Acts. Everything was going magnificent. It was wonderful. You had Barnabases that were really actually living out Barnabas. And then Satan comes in. Satan attacks the body. And in fact, he gets, he gets a victory here. We read about it in the next few verses. We read about how he comes in as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the people that he devoured in this context are believers. Now, you may say, how is it that Satan can, can attack this way? We know he cannot. He cannot possess you, but he can influence you. Do you remember how he did it with Jesus, own disciple Peter? That he got Peter to say to Jesus, you can't go to Jerusalem, you can't go through this. And Peter tried to stop Jesus, and Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't possessed, he was just influenced. He got selfish by Satan's prodding. We know that Satan can use your anger, your upsetness with family or friends or co-workers, that you could give way to Satan by hanging on to that anger. We know that an individual who is in a marriage relationship, that they can be tempted, even in the physical area of, of sexual activities, that Satan can do this. He can tempt the married or the unmarried in that area. We know that if we don't forgive people the way we're supposed to forgive, we're giving an advantage to Satan. Well, he got an advantage in a different way. In a different way. It's seen in the lives of two people, the bad guys in the story. They're a couple, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and we read their story in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession, just like everybody else was doing. They got in on it. They kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, but they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it still not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these things, he fell down and gave up the ghost. It, just let's clarify who these people were before we go any further. Okay? They are mentioned, the, the only spot they're mentioned is here. I don't know anything more than you do about them. They're a married couple. They're in the church. They're obviously involved enough that they know what's going on. They're involved in the sense that they know people are giving and distribution is being made. And so they want to get in on this. They have some property. They sell the property. But what they do it's, is this. They bring the monies to the church and they only bring part of what they have sold it for. But they claim they, this is all the money they sold it for. The issue is not whether or not they kept part of it or gave part of it. The issue is they lied about it. That's the issue. They weren't forced to give it all, they, but they lied because... I, why? Why are they doing this? I don't know. Okay? I, I, I don't know. It's not that they were forced to give the money and then they cheated. It, they weren't. It's, it's in their power. 
So it's up to them that they have to, by themselves, make this determination. We know, I know that they were influenced by Satan. Satan filled their heart. Was it because they were craving the accolades that somebody like Joseph was getting? Were they craving the attention? Were they, were they wanting people to, to say, look at us. Notice us. Notice me. Did they, did they crave a position of prominence in the body and thought that this way, by presenting ourselves as such charitable givers, maybe we will become leaders in the church? Was it because they were just simply jealous of Barnabas? I mean, Barnabas was so close to the apostles that they give him a nickname. Maybe they didn't like that. Maybe they wanted to be closer to the apostles than Barnabas. Maybe they wanted a nickname. They wanted to be commended. I don't know. I assume all of that is part and play here. But Satan filled their heart to the point that they were hypocrites. They were pretending to be one thing, but they were actually another when it came to the church service. So what happens to them? We read this. And the Ananias hearing these things, that is, Peter says to him, how Peter knew the Spirit of God reveals this, I, I'm not sure. But Peter confronts him and said, Ananias, is it true? Are you going to keep up this lie? And Ananias, he holds to it. And he gave up the ghost and great fear comes upon him, or upon the body. So after Peter, Peter confronts him, Ananias is still ins- insistent and God kills him. Now that's quite the church service where somebody drops dead in the middle of the church service because they were a hypocrite. That all of a sudden, boom, instantly. And how would you react if you were sitting in that church service and it was known he lied about his offering and God killed him? How would you respond? I would kind of hesitate, what am I going to put in this offering next time? I want to be really careful. Uh, this is, but there's more to the story. It says one time, great fear. It's going to say it again because as the story goes on, Ananias is the guys they, that are there. It says they rose, they wound him up, and they, they, they burial wrapped him. And they went out and buried him. And after that, it's about the space of three hours, his wife shows up. She doesn't know what's happened. I don't know why she doesn't know. Didn't she get the text that her husband died? I don't know. I, don't, I do know this. Burials in Bible times, they were done quickly. They, they didn't delay. And I, and I know this, that you know, they, they, she wasn't there in the church service. Did they know where she was? Was she on a trip out of town? Was she just showing back? I don't know. Neither do you. But I, I do know this. His death was not a good situation. It was a clearly God's judgment. Therefore, I think all of us would agree that if somebody died in that manner, we would probably be very quiet and discreet and kind of just take him out the back door. We wouldn't publicize. and We wouldn't say, let's have a celebration of life service for him. That there was just, again, what is the overriding emotion right now in the church? Fear. Fear. What do we do with this? You know, should we, remember you're Jewish. Should we even touch this body? 
Okay, what should we do here? And so I can imagine the entire group got very quiet about it. And when Sapphira comes walking in, Peter asks her, Sapphira, did you and your husband actually sell the, the amount of land for the amount you claim you did? And she assures him, yes, absolutely. Isn't this amazing? A couple, a, a married couple agreeing together to try to deceive others. Agreeing together to lie. We're supposed to be holding one another accountable. We're supposed to be helping our wives to, to grow in grace, to be presented to Christ. And this husband is dragging his wife down into his sin and has convinced her to go along with it. It's a horrible situation for a married couple that they're in cahoots with this. Well, then what happens, as soon as she agrees, then Peter says, um, Sapphira, you know, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the man that just went and buried your husband, they're coming in the door, and they're going to carry you out too. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. Put it in modern terms. She what? She dropped dead. Okay? She literally dropped dead. And so it's amazing. And then they carrying her out. And then notice what it says in verse 11. What happens? It's stated a second time. What's the response in the body? Great fear came upon how many in the church? Whoa! And as many as heard these things. And so this was an amazing situation. To the point, jump down a couple verses. To the point that we read, people in the community dared no man to join themselves to the church. They magnified them. They respected them. But they were having second thoughts about joining that church. That doesn't mean they didn't. Because notice the next verse says that multitudes are added. But there is a hesitancy that takes place. So putting it all together, let's, let's, just, let's just walk this through and explain, make sure that we all understand. Fear gripped the body. It gripped the community. A healthy fear of God. That God hates sin. And God punishes it. Remember, these people are Jewish. Had they ever heard of this in the Old Testament? Had people ever dropped dead in the Old Testament for judgment of, of disobeying God? Yes. They know the stories. They've heard them since they were children. But Ananias and Sapphira were thinking, we're the exception. We can get away with it. Well, all of a sudden they didn't get away with it. There's body. There's people on the outside that are seeing this church, that are hearing the preaching. They're not quick to join anymore. That idea of let's join that group because they give out a lot of food. They give a lot of stuff. That's done. That idea of let's join that group and we'll just pretend to be. That's done. Easy believism is out the door. There is now, if you're going to join into this group, you better, be care you better be careful and cautious. You better know that God is watching. God is seeing. God is involved with these people. Not like some ritual. Not like some, some mechanical worship service. The hand of God is on this group. They see that. They know that. And so they're going to be very cautious. And they're going to have to be very convinced uh, in their heart that when they join, they are committed to joining. 
This isn't just something to do on a, on a Sunday morning. This isn't just to fill time to look good amongst my neighbors and, and others around me. If I join that group, I've got to be really committed. So there's a healthy fear that came upon the body and upon others. And they weren't going to play church. Do you think people in 2023 play church at times? Do you think it could happen in this group? So what happens here is some people read this passage and they say, this is really harsh of God. This is really just too much that God was so strict. In fact, some of us look at it and say, good thing he doesn't do that every service now. Okay? And why doesn't he? Can I give you some food for thought as you think about this? Look at the text very clearly and notice what God says. God says, number one, your sin, Ananias and Sapphira, was directed directly at me. He makes it clear when he says, you agreed to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. What did Jesus say to Satan? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. They, but, but here, God is saying, you're tempting me. You're testing me. You're trying me. You have not lied unto people but in your pretend, you have lied unto God. And God took this as a personal affront in that sense that you are doing exactly what Galatians 6 says, Ananias and Sapphira. What I'm going to have Paul write later on is, God is not mocked. The word means this, I don't need to listen to you. It's to raise the hand against. And so they raise their hand, not physically, but in a spiritual way, they raised their hand to God. And they played the hypocrite. And as a result, God judged them. I want you to catch something else. Not only does God see this as a personal assault, but the text tells us this, that they gave way to Satan. They were listening to Satan more than God. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? We know Satan's a liar. He's a liar and murderer, Jesus said. And he's, Jesus is saying, wait a minute, you who claim to be my disciple, you are being run by Satan, by this pretending, by this, you know, this act that you have done. Serious stuff. Can you consider this as well? Their sin of hypocrisy was motivated by pride. What does God say about pride? He says, I hate it. Very clearly, we have scriptures that they knew, they grew up, they heard this. They have Jewish background that God says that he, hate, he hates evil, pride, arrogancy. That it's not the only time in Proverbs. There are a couple others that say as well, I hate pride. And so you look at this and you say, wait a minute, pride is what got Satan to fall. Pride is what got Adam and Eve to sin. Do you remember? Satan said to them, if you eat this, you shall be as gods. And so even though this church is doing really, really, really good, you got people in it that are all of a sudden succumbing to Satan's influence to become proud, to say, wait a minute, 
I, I, I am going to do what the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees do that Jesus told us about. Jesus said, do not be as the hypocrites that when they come and they give their gifts, they make the trumpets ring. They want the crowd to notice to how good they are. Jesus condemned that in Matthew 6. And now all of a sudden Ananias and Sapphira are doing that same act of hypocrisy in the church service that Jesus warned against and are all about, look at me, look at me, aren't I good? Can I give you something else to consider? This sin of hypocrisy could greatly damage the church if Jesus didn't do something about it. It could greatly affect it. Remember, the church is going well at this moment. Do you remember that things are fine, but the church is going to need leaders. In the next chapter, they have to pick more leaders. They're going to pick Barnabas as one of the leaders. If Ananias got away with this, what's the chances of him being picked by a congregation that was ignorant of what he was doing? Could that then damage the church with a proud, arrogant, self-seeking man being at the helm? Yes or no? Absolutely. Do you remember what Jesus describes the church as being? The pillar and ground of truth. The church is supposed to be filled with truth. We're supposed to be preaching truth. We're to be lifting up truth. The only way we can do it is if we live truth. If we are truthful in our worship, if we are genuine in what we present before God, if we're not play-acting, if we're really honestly worshiping in spirit and in truth. Okay? Which Jesus called for in John chapter 3, or 4. And so here you have this situation that he's going to warn later on, if you have something in the church, you've got to purge it out. You got to purge it out. Well, he hadn't set the rules for purging out yet. It was still early in the formation. They didn't understand how to do it, so God did it himself. God did the Matthew 18 church discipline without the process because it still hasn't been taught and incorporated and inscripturated. So God is taking hands into his own matter. And he is, or the matter into his own hands, excuse me. And he is dealing with it in the sense of getting them out. Getting this leaven out so that the whole lump isn't affected by it. And remember now, Jesus is jealous for this body of Christ. He gave himself for it. We read in scriptures that he loved the church. We read that they are the bride. Do you realize that Jesus is jealous over you? That he bought you, that he paid for you, and as such, he doesn't want you to have another love in your life that is a sinful act, that is a habit, that is feeding the flesh. He wants you to live pure and holy. So he doesn't stand by. He doesn't ignore when we tamper, when we dabble, when we fool with things. And we think we're the exception and we think that since he let me get by and he didn't strike me dead last Sunday, that it's okay this week. And you forget the concept that God is holy 
and we are to be ye holy as I am holy. And he hates hypocrisy. He hates deceit. Can I, can I bring out the, the good aspect of some of you who labor? If I asked even right now, uh, Lois, you've taught for how many years were you in the classroom? A couple hundred? <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. She is just one of the outstanding teachers that I've ever met. 30 years in the classroom. When you started class, and you have a group of, you taught all different ages, right? Did you set rules two weeks, two months, or did you set your rules and get tough the first day? I know our answer because we've had this conversation. You did it right away. You set up the standard and it was tough right away. Yes? And then you could become, if you ever did, okay, you could become a little bit more lenient as time went by, right? But I, I know you taught my daughter, who is a teacher, she says, well, Mr. Stump always said, be tough right away. Look at Scripture. When God set up the tabernacle, when was he the most rigid about that tabernacle? Right away. When Nahab and Abihu came in and burnt strange fire, he took them out. He set the standard right away. When they went into the promised land and Achan stole, was God toughest right away? He set the standard. He set the bar high right away. Okay? The church is starting. What message is God giving to the body right away? Do whatever you want. I don't care if you are one thing on Sunday and another thing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Is that the message? Or is the message very clear? Don't play the hypocrite. And you know the word hypocrite, right? Back in Bible days, what did it mean? It meant play acting. The actors were called hypocrites. That's where you get the word. Somebody who's play acting. Somebody who has a mask on. And in this text, the message is very clear to the New Testament church at that, at that moment. At that moment, they are saying, God is saying, I want you to be real. I want you to be truthful. You don't play act. <laughs> Arthur Conan uh, Doyle, writer of Sherlock Holmes, he, he was a prankster at times. So what he did is he pulled a prank on two dozen of his really good friends who were public figures, who were well-esteemed individuals, who were, who were men who were in charge of business and politics and different things. And he sent them an unsigned telegram to two dozen of his friends. The telegram read this, flee at once, all is discovered. It's all it said. Within 24 hours, 20, uh, 12 of them had fled the country. <laughs> if all of a sudden you got a message, you got an email that said, we've, uh, we've discovered on your internet what you've been doing. How would you respond? I don't know what they're talking about. Oh no, what if other, they tell others? What, what about our life that we hide from God, which we don't, but we come and we worship and we say, God, 
You just got to take me the way I am. I'm good enough. And we mistake God's patience for his approval on playing the hypocrite. But the word of God says you reap what you sow. The word of God says the Lord shall judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the angry God, the living God. The word of God says even if we do communion wrong, God can take physical destruction into our life. He can mete out even a sin unto death. But we don't think that way anymore. We have gone the way of the world that almost has the idea that God is impotent, God is unaware, and God doesn't care, and he's a man who's too busy to be watching what I'm doing. But that's not the truth. God sees us. God watches us. God can be quenched, or he can be delighted by the way we act and respond. Which is it this morning? Are you an individual that is delighting God's heart or disappointing him? And he warns us in Scripture, he says, even in the smallest areas, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged by God. If we would say, that's wrong, I've got to stop the way I've been treating my kids. It is wrong the way that we are quarreling as a husband and wife. It is wrong that I am taking from my employer. It is wrong I'm not giving a full day's work. It is wrong the way that I have been gossiping about others. It is wrong the stories I tell, the words I use. It is wrong the things that I've been looking at in private and in secret. It's wrong. And it's got to stop. God hates it. God is against it. And if I fear the Lord, I need to understand I've got to stop. Because it'd be fearful to fall into the hands of a living Lord who would discipline me. So what do we do with this whole story this morning? Well, the positive is realize that God honors and God blesses the person who strives to be an encouragement, to be a blessing, to be a truthful servant. God will, God will bless you if you do that. If you say, I will go out of my way to be an encourager. I will help build up others. I will engage in others. I will become a good example to others like Barnabas does. He even realized that as, as an individual in the church, his example was affecting others. So make a good example. I was reading the story about a Bowery missions. And in this missions that they were doing, there was a guy who would come by once in a while. His name was Joe. And Joe was one of those drunks who was a mean drunk. He was just vulgar and just you know, hurtful and engage others on the street in street fighting and all kinds of evil things. And uh, he came to the mission and would mock it. But one time he came, he listened, and he responded to the gospel. He got saved. After dozens of times, he got saved. And when he got saved, they said, he changed. His language changed. His attitude changed. He wasn't this mean, he wasn't this guy on the streets you try to avoid. Instead, he was kind to others. And he dedicated himself to working at the mission. He's the guy that would all of a sudden clean up that which men spewed because they were drunken. He was the guy that would go into the bathrooms and clean them up after drunks used the bathroom. 
He was the guy that they found then in the days and the weeks later. Joe was the guy who was giving baths to guys who desperately needed. Helping them to get into a bed when they couldn't even, didn't even know where they were. Feeding some who were too frail and feeble because of their addiction. So that went on for weeks and months and Joe was consistent and gracious and loving and serving and helping others. And one day one of his buddies came in and as the service was being preached, the preacher thought, oh, he's, not, he's sleeping, he's you know, intoxicated. But when he gave the, the invitation, that buddy of Joe's came right to the front, knelt down, and started weeping and sobbing. I need to repent. God, I need to repent. So the preacher got down next to him, and he heard him say, God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. And the preacher said, you mean you want God to make you like Jesus? And the man looked back and says, is he like Joe? If somebody prayed this morning for change, could they, would they say, make me like because of your consistency, your example, your graciousness? We have a lesson here that stands out. That we've got to beware. As a body, we've got to understand this. When things are going good, Satan's not going to stand by idle. He's going to attack. When family's going good, Satan's not going to like it. When you're witnessing and sharing the gospel, Satan's going to do what he can to use you, to use me, to divide, to bring in to this body, stain, taint, destroy purity. Satan's alive and active. And you and I do not want to become what he wants us to become. We don't want to be hypocrites. Which brings me to this thought. God does not turn a blind eye to hypocrisy. We need to eradicate that from our minds. We need to realize that God has high standards. He doesn't change them because you're special or I'm special. He has standards. And and even when we are influenced by the devil, that doesn't excuse us. That doesn't doesn't say, oh, wait, you know, the, the devil made me do that. God holds his children responsible for the decisions they make. Think that through. Because in our society, you are told constantly you're a victim. You can't help what you do. Yes, you can. You are a believer in Christ, and I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Just because you grew up in an abusive home, that doesn't mean you have a green card to be abusive. Just because you grew up in an environment where there was addiction, that doesn't give you the green light to do, be a, one of addiction. Just because you had family that, that did things to you, that doesn't mean we are responsible for the decisions we make. God holds us responsible. And so we don't want to play the hypocrite. If we do, there's going to be conviction. There's going to be challenge. This could be the conviction right here. And if you ignore it, there could be chastisement. So that brings us to the fourth lesson. The fourth lesson is you have a choice to make. You've got a very personal choice to make. 
Become a helper or become a hypocrite. Do a Barnabas or do an Ananias and Sapphira? The choice is yours. The consequences, it's going to be on yours. The blessing or the conviction. Which one are you right now? Which one will you be this week? There's a hymn that we sing, and we should sing really, really carefully. It's Search Me, O God. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to sing this with me, but with truth and honesty in your heart. And if you're here this morning and you need to talk with somebody, we're going to have some folk go over here to the side door. They'll be ready to counsel, to help, and go there. Get some of that help. But do not harbor, do not hold on to, do not say God doesn't care. He does. The question is whether you care about God. Search me, O God.